0: Uh, good morning. My name is Alan. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace Hill Church, and it is just a joy. It was a joy to worship with you this morning. If this is your first time here, I just want to welcome you. We're glad that you're here, and we'd love to be able to connect with you after the service. So I'll let you know uh, how you can do that in just a few moments. But right now, we are going to jump into God's Word together. So if you have a Bible, you can open that to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter five. So that's a little bit later in your New Testament, towards the end of your Bible. You have a few minutes before we read that to find it. But Ephesians chapter 5 is where we'll be, uh, and the verses will be on the screen behind me. And you can also use the, uh, uh, your Bible app or something on your phone if that's uh, easiest for you. This morning is part 19 of our King Jesus sermon series. Uh, this has been a long series for us, and so just so you know, it's going to go all the way to part 23, so we're, we're, we're getting towards the end of it. But what we've been talking about in this sermon series is what does it mean for Jesus to be king of every single part of our life? And so we've been in this little uh, six-week stretch of sermons where we've been talking about some very specific topics and how Jesus can be king of those areas of our life. So we've talked about our time, we've talked about our work, we've talked about family, we've talked about our reputation, and so all of this has been grounded in the truth of who God is and who we are, all right? So this is why what we did is we took 14 sermons of this series to study the Bible and get an understanding— Who is God and who are we? How do we relate with one another? Because God doesn't want to be king over our lives just to give us a bunch of rules to obey. He doesn't want to be king over our lives just because he's opposed to our pleasure or our joy. But rather what we've been seeing in the Bible is that God wants to be king of our life precisely because he is after our pleasure In our joy. He wants it for us. And so we spent 14 sermons of this series establishing the point that God created us to bear his image. We are image bearers of God. And that there is great joy in living our lives for God. And there is unceasing restlessness when we live our lives for ourselves. So, we, we've been spending a lot of time just trying to, to drill that into our minds. So, if you've missed this series, and you want to go back and listen to all those that are all uh, online, I encourage you to do that. And this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about this conflict between living for God and living for self and how we're tempted to do that. We're going to talk about how this conflict reaches even into the most intimate. In personal spaces of our life. And so this morning's topic is sexuality. Now, this is a tense topic, not just because of where the culture is, but because it's a deeply personal topic and it's a powerful topic. There is nothing that is as personal, as intimate, and as vulnerable as sexuality. And the reason for that is because engaging in sexual intimacy is one of the—actually, it's, it's the one physical thing that you can do that has a direct line to your soul. Sexual intimacy is as much of a mingling of your soul with another person's soul as it is your body's. It's giving another person access to the most sensitive and personal aspects of who you are. It's a direct line from your body to your soul. And therefore, sexuality has the power and ability to spark joy and pleasure in your soul quicker really than anything else. And it has the power and the ability to damage your soul Quicker than anything else. And so we need to talk about this with with gentleness and care. Uh, In Song of Solomon, chapter 8, rather uh, erotic book of the Bible, if you read it, the Bible says that sexual passion is like a mighty flame that a raging river cannot quench. In other parts of the Bible, it describes this as something that is intoxicating. It completely takes you over. And I want you to know, these are not negative descriptions of this in the Bible. These are actually quite positive. They are descriptions of how powerful God made sex to be. And because of that, we have to respect the kind of power that it can have Over us. It's like the other day, my wife and I walked into the kitchen and saw my son Leland putting a piece of construction paper in the candle that was lit in our kitchen. Right? So, how did we react to this? I would stop. What are you doing? Right? We wanted to put the fear of God in our son when it comes to fire. Why? Because fire is evil, because it's immoral. No, because it's bad and dirty. No, because it's bad that he's attracted to it. No, but because it's powerful. And if you don't respect its power, it's gonna burn the house down. So when it comes to sex, we need to be careful because we're talking about something that is so powerful and yet it has unobstructed access to your soul. So I don't wanna shortchange the the joy and the beauty and the pleasure that God created sex to give us, but I also need to be careful because there are many of us who have been deeply hurt, deeply wounded, deeply ensnared, and you feel great shame because either we or someone else played with fire in a way that hurt your soul. So this morning I want to I want to look at what the Bible has to say about sex and I and I want us to see this morning that it 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 presents it as something that is good and right and holy and amazing and also something that is powerful. All right, so I'm going to teach you what the Bible has to say about sex. Now let me give you kind of my overall point that I'm going to try to unpack for the the rest of our time together. Let me give you a quick caveat. Okay. Uh, This might sound weird the first time you read it, all right? So just just hang with me for a second, all right? So here you go. Here's my big overall point. Sex is how we create and experience a bond with another person that is like the bond that we have with Jesus. And you're like, that does sound a little weird, all right? What I'm not saying is that our bond with Jesus is sexual, I'm not saying that, okay? We're not some weird cult, all right? What I am saying is that the physical sexual bond that we can have with another person, spiritually speaking, at the soul level, is like the bond we have with Jesus. Remember, sex is a direct line from the physical to the soul. It does something to the soul. And so the soul level bond that is formed through sexual intimacy is like the soul level bond that we have with Jesus. Let me show you where we find this in the Bible. So this is in Ephesians chapter 5, if you have that open. I'm just going to read us two verses, verses 31 and 32. Let me, a little context this is a letter that Paul is writing to one of his churches in Ephesus. And he's in this chapter giving instructions about marriage and sex. And so here's what he says, verse 31 and 32. Paul says, right here in this first verse, he's quoting from Genesis chapter 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. Now he's ending his quoting of Genesis, and now he has some commentary. Verse 32, this Mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. All right, so Paul goes back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. He goes all the way back to where paradise, where everything was right and perfect and good, there was no sin, and this is what God says about sex all the way back. There. This is where everything is good and it's right. And what we read is that God designed this physical way of a husband and a wife, one man and one woman, to intimately relate and show affection to one another in such a way that it binds your soul together. They become one flesh. But Paul says something really interesting here in verse 32. He says, This is a profound mystery. Right? We don't understand fully the spiritual realm of things. So when we talk about our soul being bound to another soul, we don't fully get that. We can't put that formula on the whiteboard. Okay? But sexual intimacy is this physical act that has a direct line to the soul and it binds your soul to another person. But it gets even more mysterious when Paul says that this also refers to the relationship between Christ and the church. In other words, there's a correlation, a similarity between the bond formed by two people through sexual intimacy and the bond that has been formed between Christ and his church through the gospel, right? The the bond that you have with Jesus. Okay, so, so the gospel binds your soul to Christ, and sexual intimacy forms a bond between you and another person, and because both of these bonds and relationships deal directly with your soul, they have great power over us. Power to bring great joy and power to great, bring great sorrow and pain. All right, so, so here's what we need to do uh, based off of this text in Ephesians 5. We need to look to our relationship with Jesus. And look at how does this relationship between me and Jesus, how does this operate? Because that needs to become the blueprint for how a sexual relationship operates. In other words, God designed sex and its incredible power to be enjoyed exclusively within a relationship that has the same operating principle as your relationship with Jesus. Make sense? And this ensures... That not only the way we practice sexuality is honoring to God, but it's safe and it's joyful for your soul. All right, so here, I'm going I'm I'm to give you four operating principles when it comes to your relationship with Jesus. So right now, we're just talking about me and Jesus. All right, so here's, here's number one. First principle of your relationship with Jesus is it's rooted in selfless love. 1 John 3.16 says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Uh, Romans 5 but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners living against God, Christ died for us. So you have to understand, there is a difference between a relationship being rooted in love and a relationship being rooted in power. When a relationship is rooted in love, I am willing to give of myself so the other thrives. When a relationship is rooted in power, I want to control the other person in order to get something that I want from them. There's a big difference between the two. And we're in D.C. We know what it's like for relationships to be rooted in power. You have something I need or I want, so I'm going to cozy up to you so that I can eventually get what I want from you. That's a relationship rooted in power. Whereas those of you who came back here to Herndon Middle School last Wednesday um, to become a mentor of some of the students here, you gave your afternoon, you you committed to come back here once a week to meet with a student, consistent time with a student who has no adult presence in their life. Not seeking anything returned, but making a sacrifice, rearranging your schedule, telling your boss, You've got to give me this time because this is important. That was a relationship that you started that's now rooted in love. And that's the kind of relationship that we have with Jesus selfless love. Listen, God doesn't need us, we don't have anything that God needs. It's not as if God was incomplete. So he said, let's devise this whole plan called the gospel and let's go save these people so that we can get from them what we want and what we need. No, Jesus came and gave his life, went to the cross to save us and forgive us, not because he needs us, but because he loves us. He wants us to thrive in joy. It's, it's simply selfless love. Operating principle number two. Your relationship with Jesus is guarded by covenant love. What is covenant love? A love that is not rooted in emotion, but is rooted in an unbreakable promise. It's what Dan read for us earlier in Romans chapter 8. Who can separate us from the love of God? Nothing can in all of creation. If you are a follower of Jesus, you have been adopted into God's family. Christ's blood covers your sin, past, present, and future. You are sealed by the Holy Spirit. It's the strength of God, not your strength, that is going to keep you in his love for all of eternity. In other words, God is radically committed to you. He'll never leave you. No matter what you do, no matter how bad you mess up, no matter how many times you're unfaithful, he will remain faithful to you. Your relationship with Christ, it's not on thin ice, it's not hanging on by a thread. thread. It is rock solid, secure, and guarded by the steadfast, never failing covenant love of God. Operating principle number three, your relationship with Jesus is for your mutual joy. It's for your joy and it's for his joy. Uh, John chapter 15, verse 11 says, These things I've spoken to you, this is Jesus speaking, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Listen, there is no such thing as a healthy relationship if one of the people in the relationship is not invested in the joy and the pleasure and contentment of the other. This is why Jesus gave us his word. He's invested in our joy. He wants us to thrive in life and live in such a way that brings us joy and peace. He's invested in it. He's willing to give of himself so that we can experience it. Mutual joy. And number four, your relationship with Jesus creates new life. I love this. Ephesians chapter 2, just look at these words, verses 4 to 7 says this, but God who's rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, selfless love, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ by Grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. All right, before we knew Christ, we were dead, spiritually dead, separated from God. God told Adam and Eve, if you sin, you will die. But God, who loves us and wants joy for us, saved us in Christ. Our relationship with Christ has sparked new life, right? Look, look at this. In this new life that we just read in Ephesians 2, Paul tells us that he raises us up with Christ so that he might show us in the coming ages. So for all of eternity, his immeasurable grace and riches towards us. In other words, in our new life with Christ, we are born again into God's family where we are loved more extravagantly than we ever could imagine for all of eternity. Right, this is your bond with Christ. We've been born again into a new life where our souls are in union with Jesus and that union of our souls is protected by a relationship where we are loved selflessly, we are loved eternally, where we'll never fear being hurt, being abandoned, being kicked out. Relationship that is for our joy. Right? And that's a context where your soul will thrive in the safety and the joy of being bonded with Christ. Okay, and so Paul says that this is the blueprint for a sexual relationship between two people. Remember, sex is a this powerful thing that has a direct line to your soul. And so what I'm telling you today is that this mighty blaze, which a raging river cannot quench, must be unleashed within the protections of a relationship that operates off of the same principles that our relationship with Jesus operates on. And when we unleash it in that context, it is a fire that burns hot, that warms the soul. But when we unleash it outside of those protections, it burns down everything it touches. So let's talk about our relationship with Jesus as a blueprint for a sexual relationship between two people. And so naturally I have four principles So here's number one. Sexual relationship must be rooted in selfless love. Sex is the most intimate, vulnerable thing you can do with another person. You are literally unclothed, opening your soul and giving someone else access. Genesis 2.25 says, speaking of marriage in paradise where there's no sin, The man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. Nothing to hide. Nothing to fear. There is never a circumstance, ever, where sex can be demanded, taken, manipulated into, guilted into, pressured into, anything, ever. Sex is always, 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 i want to try to emphasize this as much as I can. In every single circumstance, meaning there's never a circumstance where this is not true. It is always, in every single circumstance, without exception, voluntarily given out of love and never taken with power. It's a gift to give someone else. It's never a right or an entitlement. Now, I know there are people in this room, I know, where it's been taken from you. And the reason that that happened to you, the reason why that hurt so bad, and the reason why it just stays with you, because it was an assault on your soul. And the responsibility for that is not on you. I don't care if it was a parent that you trusted, a family member who would never do that. I don't care if it was a spouse. I don't care if it was a pastor or a priest. Your hurt is legitimate because it was an assault on your soul. And your abuser assaulted the soul of one of God's precious children. He'll get justice. Whenever sex is taken... And not lovingly given its abuse every time. I don't care if it's a spouse guilting their spouse into it using Bible verses or however they want to do that. I don't care if it is a boss who uses his power and authority to manipulate someone into it. Or it could be criminal sexual assault. Whatever it is, the whole gamut, it's an abuse of God's design for sex. And it damages the soul. Sex is designed to flourish within the protection of selfless love, a relationship where two people are lovingly giving themselves for the joy of the other. And, that, and that's why the next operating principle is so critical when we talk about God's design for sex. So that's, here it is, number two. A sexual relationship must be guarded by covenant love. In other words, the the sexual relationship between two people is designed to flourish within the protection of a committed-for-life marriage between a husband and a wife. Where two people's souls are joined together and they live their lives selflessly loving the other, giving of themselves to the other. You cannot have selfless love, our first principle, without covenant love, our, our second principle. Because without covenant love, you can just walk away when things get hard, You can just decide to end the selfless love whenever you want. But true selfless love is covenant love. right? I mean, think about this. The the gospel bonds our soul to Christ. All right, 1 Corinthians 6.17 says, But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. And that bond with Christ allows us, look at this, to rest. Oh man, could you imagine having a relationship with Jesus where oh, you did have to read your Bible every morning. And if you didn't, then everything was up in the air. How could your soul rest? Or every time you messed up, you had to worry if you really were saved. How could your soul rest? But God promises us that he'll never leave us or forsake us. And in the same way, the Bible is saying is that sexual intimacy between two people binds your soul to them. You become one flesh. Speaking to it in a, in a negative sense, 1 Corinthians 6.16 says, Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Going back to Genesis again. And so this is a part of this mystery that Paul is talking about in Ephesians 5. Anytime we are sexually intimate with someone else, we are giving them a part of our soul and taking a part of theirs. And that's a mystery, but that also explains why sex is never merely physical. It does something emotionally to us, and it bonds us with another person. And that's by God's design. He did not design sex to just be this physically pleasurable thing. He designed it to bring pleasure and joy to your whole being. But it's got to be protected by covenant love. A lifelong exclusive marriage. That's why God forbids sex outside of marriage. Because that is playing with a fire that has real implications to your soul and to the other person's soul. See, by God telling us that, he's not limiting our joy. He's not trying to constrain our joy. He's after our joy. He knows better what sex outside of marriage is going to do to us. You know, I remember when I was a kid, I used to go over to my friend uh, Alex's house and um, we used to, this is so stupid, we used to take these rags and soak them in gasoline, light them on fire and take sticks and throw it back and forth, right? The little fireball, right? We were idiots. Now we never did this at my parents' house. Why? Why? I mean, they would, they would shut that down. I'd be grounded for weeks if we did that, if they saw me do that. And I have no idea what I would do if I saw my son doing this. Like, I'm a complete hypocrite. But I would limit him. I would constrain him. I would go out and command, don't do that. That's dumb. Right? Not because I want to kill his joy or limit his freedom, but it's precisely because I want as much joy for my son as he could ever have. God is good. He loves us. He wants joy for us. He gave us his amazing gift in sex, but he says it's got to be respected and enjoyed within the protection of covenant love. So you take selfless love and you combine that with covenant love and what do you get is our next Operating principle number three, a sexual relationship must be for mutual joy. The only way for selfless love and covenant love to come together is when you have a husband and a wife in a committed relationship who are both giving of themselves for the joy of the other. When both are more concerned about giving joy than receiving joy, both receive joy. Mutual Joy. All right, so if you allow me, let's, let's take this principle into the bed for a second. God made men and women very different. God made the sexual drive of men and women very different. God made the emotional aspects of intimacy very different for men and women. God made the biology of men and women very different. This is all part of God's design. God designed sexual intimacy to be something, understand this, where the needs and desires of your spouse are probably going to be different than your needs and desires. But when both are focused on meeting the needs and desires of the other, two unique, different parts come together to make a joyful whole. So whenever we are more focused on what we want to receive, how we want our spouse to approach sexual intimacy, how we want them to initiate, or all of those things. Whenever we're focused on just our needs and not our spouse's needs, we are more focused on our own joy than we are our spouse's joy. We are using their soul, not taking care of it. Whenever we go outside of marriage to get our needs or desires met, like to pornography or another relationship or letting our minds dwell in fantasy, we are more focused on our own joy than our spouses. It's not selfless love, that is love of self. It's taking, it's not giving. It's being more concerned for your own joy at the expense of your spouse's joy. You know, we don't serve a God who uses us for his own joy at the expense of ours. We serve a God who gives all of himself for our joy. And that's what we're called to do with our spouse. And last but not least, principle number four. A sexual relationship must create life. All right, it's not by accident that the two things that bond our souls together, the gospel of Jesus Christ and sexual intimacy, creates life. Right? Our bond with God through the gospel creates new life in us. And our bond with our spouse in sexual intimacy creates new physical life. Now, listen, I'm not saying every time a couple enjoys sexual intimacy, it's got to be for procreation. There are some who think that. I don't think that, but that's an issue for the conscience. But when God creates new spiritual life in us, in the gospel, we're born again into God's family. I want you to get this. We're born again into God's family. And the operating principle of that family is one of selfless love, covenant love, and mutual joy. We already went through all of it. And God made it so that the fruit of sexual intimacy is also new life. And his desire is that our children would be born into a family that also operates with selfless love and covenant love and mutual joy, right? Our souls flourish because this is how God loves us and our children flourish in an environment where they have a mom and a dad that love each other in that same way. This is why God's design of sex, And marriage is is one man, one woman, who love each other selflessly, despite their differences, for each other's mutual joy, until death do them part, or the Lord returns. Sex is how we create and experience a bond with another person that is like the bond that we have with Jesus. This is how we bear God's image even in our sexuality, and it's within this context that these protections that God designed this fire to rage for our joy. This is the biblical view of sexuality. And obviously this is something that many, many people disagree with. In fact, I think there's a lot of people who would say that what I've said and preached and you know, is oppressive, it's hateful. And partly because it's a view of sexuality that has limits. But I hope this morning I was at least able to communicate the origin and purpose of those limits. These limits are not rooted in some religious morality. They're not rooted in some religious law that God wants his church to impose on the state. Rather, these limits are rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We look at our relationship with Jesus and how he loves and cares for us, and we see a blueprint for sexual intimacy. And so, this is important. It is so important. It is biblically backwards to expect people to see a biblical view of sexuality as good if they don't know Jesus. How could you? If you don't know what a relationship with Jesus is like, if you don't know what the gospel is, you don't understand a biblical view of sexuality. The church gets this backwards all the time, and it's hurting people out there. It is biblically backwards to impose biblical sexuality on people if they don't know Jesus. It's anti-gospel to preach that without preaching grace. And for too long, churches in America have had greater passion in preaching about sexuality than they have had Jesus. Almost to the point where to the world, it feels as if before we'll introduce you to Jesus, you need to get your sexual ethics right. We will treat you as an abomination until you get yourself cleaned up. And then you're welcomed into the church. And let me tell you what is an abomination to God. It's the church that withholds the gospel and acts as if the only people who struggle with sexual brokenness is them out there, not inside the church walls. Give me a break. At Grace Hill, we're going to teach the Bible because we believe that's where life is found. No matter where the cultural winds blow, doesn't matter. No matter if people are threatening tax-exempt statuses, doesn't matter. At Grace Hill, everyone is welcomed here. Everyone is cherished here because every one of us needs Jesus. Every one of us has baggage. Every one of us struggles with sin. Every one of us needs to be challenged. Every one of us needs to be loved. Every one of us needs grace. There is not one of us who, after listening to how I presented God's design for sex, that can say, I don't struggle with that at all. I'm perfect all the way through. And I don't know who I'm speaking to right now. I just know by the nature of this topic that there's probably somebody here who's just feeling extra weight of shame and guilt because they feel that they have so much to hide. They feel like man you don't Helen you don't know the ways that I've messed up. You don't know what has happened to me. You don't know what my past is like. You don't know what's going on right now. There's just way too much. Way too much for God's grace. I I if there is an exception in the room of someone who's too far on this one, it is obviously me. My soul is just battered beyond repair. I just want you to know right now that is Satan himself telling you that. It is not true. If right now you're feeling the weight and shame of your sin, if you're feeling the damage to your soul, you need to know this morning that Jesus went to the cross and allowed his body to be pierced, and listen to me, his soul to be rejected by his father because he took that sin that you think is way too heavy and he put it on himself. And his lifeless body and battered soul went into the grave. And you know what happened? Is that paid the debt of it all, of your sin. You're free. God doesn't hold that against you. And because sin is now defeated, God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he resurrects Jesus with a soul that is whole and intact, glorified. And so Jesus now invites the guilty and the broken and the battered and weary sinners to come to him and lay their sins down before him and say, gosh, this is so much, I can't even fit it all in here. God, I don't know what to do with this. Can you do something with this? And Jesus says that if you'll just do that, if you'll trust me with your sin, trust what I did on the cross, just lay down before me. Through the power of the gospel, what I'm going to do is I'm going to bind my resurrected soul to your battered soul. I'm going to make you new. And I'm going to protect your soul. I'm going to give all of myself for you. From this point forward, there'll never be a moment where I'll forsake you or leave you or abandon you. No matter what you've done, no matter what you'll do in the future, no matter what your current struggles are. This isn't contingent on your righteousness, it's contingent on mine. But best of all, I'm going to give you new life forgiven, redeemed life. And here's your future for the rest of this life and into the next in eternity. I am going to spend the rest of our relationship showing you the immeasurable riches of my grace in your life. That's your future. So I I don't know where many of you are are struggling with this this morning. Um, Maybe some of you are feeling battered Because you were abandoned by a spouse. You were abused. You were assaulted. Someone took something from you. And I just want you to know there is healing and there is wholeness found in Christ. But oftentimes we need someone to help us come to Christ. We need someone to help us lay it all down. And so I just want to encourage you. If that's you this morning, you need to talk to someone. This is not something to hold in all on your own. And I know everything tells you keep that thing inside. And so if you need to talk to someone, I just want to encourage you to do that. Talk to one of your pastors or we can help get you hooked up with a, a counselor or talk to a trusted friend who's going to point you to the gospel because what you need is Jesus. And you might say, well, I already know Jesus. Well, we continually need to be brought to the cross as we seek healing. Talk to somebody. Maybe some of you are feeling just the weight of your own sin, and yet you've been too ashamed to confess and seek true repentance. Listen, Jesus didn't hang on the cross to protect your ego. He hung on there to redeem your soul. And this is a church that you can trust to help you begin that process of dealing with your sin and bring it into the light. So you, I encourage you, talk to someone. A trusted friend, sit down. One of your pastors, we'd love to sit down with you, but you've got to start to get this out. And maybe for some of you, sexual intimacy has just been a really difficult part of your marriage. Uh, This is common for most married couples. You're not alone in that. You're not the only one. And so, again, same encouragement. Go talk to somebody. Let someone speak into your marriage. Have honest conversations. Like go get counseling. Let us counsel you. My wife and I have had marriage counseling. Let's just get the stigma of counseling away. It's so destructive. Like talk to someone. Let your marriage go somewhere where it's never been before. Let Jesus begin to heal you. I mean, listen, we're a church. Let's drop the pretense. Let's take the masks off. Let's believe that Jesus can make us whole. And so this morning, as we just conclude, if you need to pray with someone, we always have prayer ministers here. We're gonna have prayer ministers up front after our service, but we're also gonna have prayer ministers in our prayer room. So if you'd like a more private space to go pray or talk to someone, you can do that right now. But I also wanted to just let you know in our... A bulletin. Uh, there are My email address is in there. All of our elders, um, our, our staff team, uh, other leaders. Uh, there's a pastors at gracehillchurch.com email address. There's a prayer at gracehillchurch.com email address. There's lots of places for you to go to if you look in your bulletin where you can request to talk to somebody. And we hold that uh, in confidentiality. We don't spread that we take that so seriously but we want to help we want to be a resource for you so please take advantage of that but we're going to spend some time right now just uh, singing to God and praising him but I want to pray for you right now before we do that and then we'll, we'll sing together Oh, God, this is a topic, Lord, that's so personal. It's so intimate. It touches each of us in different ways. And so, Lord, I I don't, I don't even know really what to pray other than to pray this, that, Holy Spirit, would you just meet each person exactly where they are. And would you just remind them right now of how loved they are of how precious they are to you. Of the enormity of your grace, of the power of your ability to heal and reconcile and make us whole. I mean, Jesus, we praise you for loving us in ways, Lord, that our soul needs selflessly, endlessly, endlessly, For our joy, help us to trust that, God. Help us to throw our entire lives onto it. So God, right now, I don't know what people need. Would you restore people if they need some restoration right now? Would you encourage their souls if they're discouraged? As we sing to you, we love you, Jesus.